Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. Been an interesting day, beautiful day. I think there's going to be some uh, thunder boomers later in the day, possible. And we, we probably need a little bit of rain at this point. You know, climate change and all is going to destroy the world. And I guess a raging fire starting the Appalachians sweep down and there'll be no more North Carolina. And the seas will rise and put the fire out, but then we'll all be gone. So. Hurtling through space, an empty ball of former life. Now, um, want to get to the activism and the art of being miserable. We've been talking, by the way, we're going to have Artis Watkins on from the State Employees Association talking about the state budget. And and very interesting. It's, I've known her for a number, a number of years. I think she's very fair-minded on this. We'll have a good discussion, a spirited one. And as always, you guys are welcome to be a part of that uh, when when that it finishes up. Now, I bring this to your attention because we were talking about, or I was talking about, kids and youngins, 13, 25 to 30 in that age range, and the level of misery amongst that crowd is palpable and bizarre. And so on the one hand, they feel they have access to all the information that they need. The internet is flawless. Their friends, the echo chamber of their social circle on Pinterest and Instagram and Snapchat is is impenetrable and correct and that the rest of us, it's not unlike any other generation, except they have access to a lot more information. You know, before you could argue about a member of a band and it would take you days or weeks to figure out, you know, who was right and who was wrong. But now they just look it up and, you know, that person wasn't a member of that band or didn't write that song or whatever. You find out instantly in most instances. And with AI, now you can do even more. You can just, you know, have it write essays for you. You, you know, a lot less work. Back in the day, don't you remember you had to pull out the Encyclopedia uh, Britannica or whatever the encyclopedias and you find something and you try not to plagiarize it and change enough words to do the report? Come on, you know you did. You don't want to admit you did, but you did. So we're now in this uncomfortable marriage where everyone you disagree with thinks that they're always right. You would never, you would never, never, never be married to someone that way, but we are in this country that way. Now, Arthur C. Brooks has a piece over at The Atlantic, uh, actually kind of, actually it's the American uh, Enterprise Institute, but it's about The Atlantic. The extent of the mental health crisis in the U.S. today, especially among young adults, is undeniable. The problem started well before the coronavirus pandemic. A survey conducted from 2005, a 13-year survey through 2018, of more than 86,000 adolescents found a startling increase in symptoms of depression after 2010. According to an analysis by the Pew Research Data Center data, the most dramatic rise had been among young, liberal, white women, more than 50% of whom reported having been told they have a mental health condition. Among the competing explanations for this is the assertion that all of the contentious issues around us, climate change, racism, gun violence, the border, are leading young adults into depression and anxiety. But it may not be the crisis themselves that are causing the despair so much as young people's typical responses to them. Protests and political activism Activism have exploded among Gen Z and younger millennials, although they may seem like productive ways to address negative emotions for these social problems. The activism itself can increase unhappiness, 
It can provoke anger and hatred toward others and create a win-lose mentality that leads to disappointment. In other words, you go to you get all upset about climate change. You go to some big activist gathering. You have the gathering. You scream and yell at people, and then nothing happens. And then you're left thinking all of that was for nothing. Because what? We live in an age of instant gratification. You want something, you go and get it. You order it on Amazon. It's there the next day. But activism leads it often leaves you hollow. I remember seeing this on the right with the Tea Party movement. The Tea Party movement largely was the creation of the reaction to Obamacare and, and, and the optics on Obamacare and how horrible it was. If you pick your doctor, you can keep your doctor. You couldn't. There were all sorts. It was kind of the stepping stone to socialized medicine. It, and, and the reality is it didn't make things cheaper. It didn't make it more affordable. It didn't make it better. It didn't make anything about medicine better. We're far worse and more expensive than we were. But here's the, the, the worst part. The Tea Party movement was the largest grassroots movement the nation had seen to that point, all over the nation, thousands of people. But it ended up not accomplishing a whole lot. And those people felt very disaffected. And most of those were much older, not 18, 19, 12, 15, 22. The right conclusion is not to become apathetic about the world's ills, to protect one's mental health and well-being. It's to change one's perspective about how to help alleviate it. The tendency of many Gen Z and younger millennials, people born from the 90s onward, to choose protest as a first resort has given rise to the label activist generation. A 2021 survey of some 10,000 Gen Zers showed that 70% are involved in a political or social cause. 70, can you imagine getting 70% of people involved in anything? Anything. I mean, this is ironic because at the same time that you hear this activism, membership in most civil, uh, well, not civil groups, but in most local charity groups and most active groups like that is, is diminishing greatly. The J JCs have gone away, the Lions, the Moose, the Elks, all the animal clubs, memberships dropping off. There are not as many people participating, but they're going to protest. So they're not, and, and yet you, you feel much better when you're, when you're part of a philanthropic group in some way. Some would argue that today's problems merit greater activism toward those, the previous generations, but Gen Z folks offer a different view. They've been conscripted as child soldiers in the baby boomer culture war. Whatever accounts for the rise in activism, research shows that it's connected to this generation's psychological distress. Last year's scholars studying climate change activists found an association between their climate activism and short-term depression symptoms. Obviously, the Causality could run in either direction. The activism may lead to depression or the depression to activism, or in fact, they may be mutually reinforcing. The best available answer comes from activists themselves. A 2021 study in the Journal of Adolescent Research, researchers interviewed college students about the effect of their activism on their well-being. Although nearly a third of the students believed that their advocacy work improved their well-being, 60% reported harm to their mental health. Quote, there have been times that at the end of the day, I'll come to bed and I'll just cry, one interviewee said, because I really don't know what I've gotten myself into. Several mechanisms may be at work. One is that the nature of much activism involves anger and contempt for people on the wrong side. In other words, if I disagree with you, you're wrong, you're a bad person. The sort of hostility towards others can be psychologically harmful for those who feel it. Today's activism tends to encourage us to see people in a very binary way, good or bad, right or wrong. Scholars have observed that this leads people to show disgust or moral condemnation toward opponents or engage in othering behaviors. These attitudes lead to guilt. They, deal, they, they lead to shame. They lead to anxiety. 
hardly a new idea. The 5th century Indian Buddhist sage Buddhahosa argued that one who hates is like a man who wants to hit another and picks up a burning ember, and it burns himself first. And and do, don't you see that? I mean, if you, and I hate to, well, I'm going to do it anyway because it's true. This Trump derangement syndrome, whether you like Trump or not, the people who hate him, they don't know about his policies. They just hate the person. And so anything that that emanates from that, even if it was good policy, even if it was fantastic economic policy or good foreign policy or it worked, these people are so in their heads from a mental standpoint that they just hate. And they're miserable people. They're not happy people. They're miserable people. They hate themselves, and they project that hate onto Trump and people who like Trump. And so they have to hate those people. There's an old saying, hurt people hurt people. And that's what we're seeing and the narcissism that comes with it. None of this is to say, back to the column, that activism is a mistake. That is for each person to decide. But much of the data present a challenge for people who want to stay engaged without sacrificing their mental health, as well as for people in positions of leadership and in academia who often encourage young people to be involved. An enormous body of evidence shows that the right sort of volunteering leads unambiguously to greater happiness. A 2022 paper in the Journal of Happiness Studies found that older adults who volunteered reported greater life satisfaction, but with an important qualification that would certainly have a bearing on their health. These adults found that their morals, morale improved after they performed more frequent non-political volunteer work, like helping someone. But it was lower after more frequent political activity, like party work. No amount of sharing rage at the state of the world can make anyone happy, but any amount of sharing love with someone who needs it may help us find happiness. True, absolutely true. And you do feel better. It's just like when you volunteer or donate blood, or give blood, rather. Oh, hey, real quick, before I forget, Carolina Readiness Supply is prepping for its annual Heritage Life Skills event. It's coming up in July, and you can learn how to be better prepared and self-sufficient in the event of any emergency. Things like homesteading, canning, water storage, radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables, all sorts of stuff. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness Supply can help. Get your tickets now at carolinareadiness.com. That's carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? Uh, Artist Watkins joining us later in the broadcast, the bottom of this hour, to talk about the state budget. A little bit of an overview there. So the way this process works, and it's you know, it's kind of like watching paint dry sometimes, unless you're in the game. And if you're in the game, it's the most exciting time. So they had crossover. Crossover is the time if you you get your bills in, like the House has their bills, the Senate has their bills. If you do it before crossover then it can be considered. In other words, it can pass or be shot down by both chambers. So crossover was, I think, about two weeks ago. And now we're in, in, in the meat and in, in potatoes side of the budget where the sausage is being made. So the Senate proposes its budget. It's a two-year budget. The House will chew on it for a little while, and they'll, they'll conference on that. And then the governor will decide if he hates it and go out preaching against it or if he can hold his nose and vote for it. He's largely been irrelevant in the budget process, uh, except for Medicaid expansion, which for some reason looks like he may have achieved. But a little bit about what's in it before we get to artists. And again, if you want to get in on the conversation, it's 704-570-1110, 570 News Talk 1110 Wonderful staff. Great staff. So, it, it's it's a little bit interesting because everyone wants to rush. I think the governor wants to give everybody the, in, in education like a 15, you know, kind of that old song, 
I can do anything better than you. Whatever you can do, I can do better. And it's and it's the governor wants to give teachers, and that's why they love him, because he doesn't want to hold them accountable. He doesn't care about the education of kids. He just wants to give teachers more money, like a 15 or 16% raise. I don't remember the exact number right this second. But it, it was an obscene amount of, of raises that, that the governor just wants to throw in there. That doesn't seem to care that much about state employees, but teachers, yeah, I guess they have a bigger voting block. So the state employees uh, in this two-year budget, it's a $29.8 billion budget, huge. State employees get a 5% across the board raise over the next two years under the Senate plan. Though the budget has another $94 million for targeted raises to, to hard, get hard-to-fill jobs, state agencies, colleges, universities. Teachers would get an average boost of 4.5% over the two-year budget, but first-year teacher salaries would go up from thirty-seven dollars uh, now to 39000 in the first year and budget to 41000 in the second year. We keep hearing that's a real problem as far as getting folks in the teaching profession, Berger said. Now, remember, teachers, I'm no, no offense to teachers, but let's have some perspective here. They work 10 months of the year. It's, it's, it's kind of a full-time, part-time job. It's, it's, it's an interesting job. But they can also have secondary jobs. And again, I'm not putting it down. We have teachers. Teachers need to be paid. But put it in perspective. They also have more time off than almost any other avocation you can have. They don't. And by the way, those figures don't include local supplements. Like Mecklenburg County, I think, gives close to $10,000 extra to teachers. It varies by school district and by you know geogra- geographic location where you are. The Senate proposal says any hospital in a county of more than $210,000 must help the state health plan which covers uh, 750,000 people, almost one in 10, realize $125 million in savings in 2026 or risk losing their license, which would close the hospital. That would be about 8% of the $1.6 billion the state health plan expects to spend at hospitals in 2025, according to state health plan staff run by the treasurer's office, interestingly enough. So, you know, we'll be talking with Artis Watkins about that. The threat is part of a running battle between hospitals and Dale Falwell, who has pushed hospitals to cut prices and be more transparent about what procedures actually cost. Senate budget writers said they don't expect hospitals to lose their license, but that this is a move to force better contracts. Um, a spokesperson for the North Carolina Healthcare Association, which lobbies for the hospital cartel in the state, said the association didn't know the licensure or certificate of need proposals were coming until Monday and that association executives needed to study them before commenting. That's not entirely true because uh, that has been bandied about in social media for months now that some kind of certificate of need process was was being looked at. Um, Ralph Heiss, someone I've known for many years, Ralph Heiss, he's from Mitchell County, and he's been wanting to get rid of certificate of need entirely, but hadn't been able to do that. But it is contingent. We do need to get rid of certificate of need stuff. So we'll see. We'll talk about salaries. There's much more uh, state agencies and stuff. We will get into those details as we get through the next segment with Artis Watkins. She's going to be our next guest here on the Pete Callender Show. All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's Military Surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. 
Artist, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hi, Chad. Doing uh, doing pretty well. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, absolutely. And it's not the typical guest for a conservative talk show, but there's, you know, this budget battle. I don't know. It's so much of a battle. I mean, it, uh, Phil Berger, you know, veto-proof majority in the Senate and over there with Tim Moore's house, a veto-proof majority by, by a margin, thanks to Tricia Cotham, uh, depending on how they vote. Governor Cooper somewhat sidelined, you know, screaming from the rafters about some issues he wants that he may not get. But when I look at the budget, it looks like, you know, it, it, it seems at least what Berger has presented so far seems to be pretty good. Uh, state employees get some raises. Teachers get raises. The budget does have some fiscal constraints on it. It it really kind of puts the screws to lo- hospitals a bit to try to bring their cost under control and get rid of some of the certificate of need. But kind of tell us your perspective um, because you have led the State Employees Association for a while, and, and you you have a lot of attention in the legislature. So tell us your version of what's going on. Sure. I mean, first of all, you're right. That there's, not, there's not a battle going on over this budget. And, and again, you're right. A battle would be just kind of a, an exercise in futility because the numbers are there to pass anything the majority wants. I think that the point we want to make, and coming on, on this show, it's very important to us because from just a fiscal conservatism view, filling these state jobs is imperative. And the only way to fill them is to pay more. We have a 23% vacancy rate in state government across the board. We'll almost you know, one out of every four jobs are vacant. In some places like prisons, that's in excess of 50% of the jobs. And so it affects the public, but more importantly, it carries a price tag to have that kind of vacancy. So just from a dollars and cents point of view and from a taxpayer services point of view, we're trying to get the message out because we do think we can do better in conference when the House and Senate get together and hash the final details out. But part of that is getting the message out there so that taxpayers know what they're dealing with. It seems, sounds like you got at least to uh, Phil Berger, who kind of who does absolutely lead. Uh, I wouldn't say with an iron fist, but he leads in a way that's very direct. I mean, his vision's very direct, and he agreed with you. And I don't know how you feel about the amount, but they did add another ninety-four million in targeted raises to help fill some of these hard-to-fill jobs at the state agencies, community colleges, and universities. Probably not as much as you would like. But it, it at least is a, is a view that there are some issues and some headwinds in filling these positions. So, I mean, Chad, those numbers sound big until you think about the fact that it's a $30 billion budget. Right. And really, it's not about whether those numbers are something that I would like. It's about whether those numbers are something that makes a difference. And if it was just a normal budget year and we didn't have any vacancy problems, then that's a pretty average raise. Although the average raise in North Carolina for 2023 is 4.1%. So it isn't really average, but let's say that was okay. We're not dealing with your average situation. We're dealing with a crisis. We have taxpayers paying 100% of their taxes and getting 77% of the services because 23% of the jobs are vacant. That means the employees are having to do double, triple duty. Even the time that they do have, they could take off. They can't take it in many cases because if they leave the job, those public services don't get done. 
Now, obviously, this is the, the first stab at it. This is the Senate's version. It now goes to the House to be kind of reconciled, to, to kind of mush these two together. What do you hear from the House side of things about where how it might proceed? So the House did better than the Senate in terms of a budget proposal. And what we're trying to do is to continue to make our case. I think that uh, both Senator Berger and Speaker Moore have been very good with working with the State Employees Association. And we think we have more work to do here, but we, but we have to make that case to them. And I think, I think the crux of the matter is this. For the public, you've got a public safety issue because you don't have enough highway patrol. We don't have enough people in the prisons and we don't have enough probation parole. We don't have enough people checking to make sure we have clean drinking water. We don't have enough school bus drivers Elevator inspectors, you know, Commissioner Josh Dobson of the Department of Labor has been begging for something to be done on vacancy rates. And just last week, there was a, an article written about forest firefighters, which not something that comes up every day, but when you need people to fight a forest fire, you need them. And we don't have them. We don't have enough. So those are public safety issues that people just kind of count on. But... You know, they, they want them when, they're, when they need them. So you have to keep those jobs filled. And, again, what we're, what we're understanding is that giving two and a half, three percent raises isn't doing it. It just continuing to do the same thing and get uh, the same result isn't working for us. So there is, there is another wrinkle, though. The, the cost of these vacancies, the cost of turnover between recruiting and uh, – Training and then losing those people is costing the state, according to Deloitte, at least a minimum of $500 million a year. Now, here's the kicker. We're asking for a 5% raise for everybody across the board. And if that was done, that would cost $435 million. And you'd come in $65 million less than what you're spending. You know you're spending for nothing just to have people walk out the door, just to burn those dollar bills. And you're also asking for a $5,000 retention bonus as well. Yes, we think that would be something that's important to spread out so that you try to get people to have a little extra motivation not to jump at the next big salary. You know, here's the deal. Chad, we've got people leaving prisons to go work at the Sheets or the Walmart down the street. There's nothing wrong with working at Sheets or Walmart, but we don't need people leaving prisons or probation parole positions to go work at those places. We need people who are trained to protect the public safety. We want them to stay in those positions. We need them to stay in those positions. It's important for the safety of their coworkers. It's important for the safety of the public. Now, Artis, we need to take a break here. We'll come back. You'll stay with us for the sure. next segment. The House had proposed uh, up to, it contemplated a 7.5% raise across the board. We'll get to that because there's some savings that there should have been achieved in the budget from previous years because of unfulfilled, unfilled positions. And like you said, the attrition rate. And Artis, and, and by the way, I'm Chad Adam, guest host for Pete Callender. Artis, is there any one area of the state that's seeing this turnover attrition rate more than others? Is there any one well, area that you would identify? It's always going to be prisons and then HHS facilities, of course. And, and those, those are ones where we have less beds even available now for in-state operated health care facilities 
for North Carolinians who need it. So, you know, the thing about this issue is it's not a Republican or Democrat issue. It is truly a, you know, an issue of vulnerable North Carolinians, taxpayers spending $500 million for nothing, you know, to have people leave in the first year. We have 37%, by the way, of our state employees leave in the first 12 months of employment, 37%. Meaning they get hired, they stick around for a little while, and then they just, they leave. They find yeah, either something 12, better. 37% are gone. And we yeah. think that is directly the result. They look at one budget cycle, they realize, hey, even when the state, you know, we're doing very well economically as a state. I, I think that the legislature is to be applauded on the fiscal policies they put in place that have uh, put us in a position of, uh, a, a good, uh, a strong fiscal position. However, if you don't use some of that money to keep your people, you know that doesn't make any sense. So that, that's where we're we're struggling. We're scratching our head. Why would you waste five hundred million? And more importantly, why would you do this uh, to? Uh, to the, to the taxpayers, because yes, it's a pain for state employees to have to do all the extra work because of so many vacancies. It's dangerous well, to our folks, artists, particularly in prisons. I, I want to get to the healthcare side of things. There's yeah. there's a number of things there that I'm familiar with that you have been involved directly with in the treasurer's yeah. office. But uh, why do you believe people are leaving these positions? They're leaving the. Someone just called in and asked that question. Why do you think people are leaving these jobs? I mean, because tra- hey, traditionally I mean, state employees have good health care around the state. And we also get phone calls all day, and the, it, it is simple. It's pay. The pay is not competitive. Again, if you can leave the state in a job with a lot of responsibility or danger and go to down the street to work at a Sonic and make the same money with benefits, by the way, um, why would you stay? And a lot of the money for those salaries, lap salaries, how much money? I mean, a lot of that was turned back into the state as well, because if it's not used, it's it's in the it's in the coffers, correct? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I know Senator Heist said something uh, yesterday about some of the unused money being used on inmate health care. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure where all of the money has gone, but it's it certainly in, in part. I know we've had private securities that have been contracted with for prisons. And you can imagine, you're not get, are you getting a better deal when you contract with private security? <laughs> I mean, well, they're in it to make money. Sure. So, um, well, turning your attention to the health care plan, because I know that's changed as well, and, and yes. a lot of employees and the state treasurer's office felt that Blue Cross Blue Shield, Blue Shield wasn't being accountable uh, to to the cost of things. Hospitals were uh, not even letting people know what they were charging for things. Yeah. How do you think that's proceeding? Because it looks like the state's at least looking at that and saying, hey, hospitals, you got to get this under control because you're killing us here on cost without being transparent. Yeah, so I think that's a really good piece of the Senate budget that they're telling the hospitals, you're going to have to be transparent about what you charge North Carolinians and North what you charge in this state health plan because taxpayers are paying for it. And look, how do you feel about the new transition? I mean, you guys are going to be affected. It's not going to be Blue Cross Blue Shield serving as the third-party administrator. It looks like it's going to be Aetna, I believe. Right. So we've been talking to Aetna since they got the contract because, you know, we want to start making sure those lines of communication are open. And we are we're certainly open to seeing what they can do for state employees. And we'll just have to see how that goes as we go.
but do you feel in general there's a, there's the health plan seemed because you, you've been working very closely with Dale Falwell's office on this. Yes. Yes. Right. But, and they, you guys have been allies in many ways trying to get this under control. Now, looking ahead, the, the House is taking things on. We've got about a, about a minute and a half here or so, uh, or two minutes. The House is looking at the budget now. Obviously, they have looked at 7.5%. So that's closer to what you're saying needs for, for state employees. And you've got a huge vacancy rate. What do you see happening with the House? Because uh, it looks like you know the Senate's going to take some guidance from the House and at least come to a compromise. Well, I mean, I think, Chad, the bottom line is, we are not going to stop until we can convince them to give 5% in each year, keep these folks, stop wasting the $500 million on people leaving. Let's spend money on something we get something out of. Um, let's not have to delay newborn testing and rabies testing and all kinds of vital things that we have to delay right now because of vacancies. And let's do the right thing for the state. So, and, and again, Artis Watkins, our guest from the State Employees Association of North Carolina, someone, and, and having met you on a number of occasions, I can say that that I would not, con traditionally, I would consider an organization like yours to be very far left of center, uh, like the teachers union. But what I've seen is in the, in the work you've done with the treasurer's office and the work you've done on some other issues, it you guys sound like a much more moderated uh, a group. It really is focused, light, laser focused. And I think that's why you went from the position in the association up to the executive director position. And so I'll give you kudos for that. How do you feel about the, some of the tax cuts coming up ahead? Because it looks like previous tax cuts have led to higher yields and more money. So I'll give you the last word here in the last minute about how you feel about uh, moving forward. Yeah, I'll be honest. Our members aren't really weighing in on tax cuts. They're, they're more interested in being able to give the services to the people for what they are right. paying taxes now. Again, people are paying 100% taxes. They're getting 77% services. It's a good line. I mean, I'll give you credit for that. <laughs> that one's easy to understand. So I'll give you. So again, our guest, Artis Watkins, she, the executive director of the State Employee Association of North Carolina. Artis, thanks for being a part of the broadcast today, okay? Thanks so much for having us. Much more to go as we get our three underway. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.